Spring is definitely on its way. In some parts of the country, planters are rolling, but in other parts of the country, planters are getting their final tune getting ready to head to the field. In today's Field Link episode, we travel to Louisiana to visit with James DeMoss, who will help us navigate the mystery of microbials and enzymes. He will share some of his insight and field experience on how Zypro can be a great solution for growers that are looking for that extra boost this season. And in recent news, the USDA came out with planting intentions for the 22 growing season. Joining us to navigate this area will be our strategic advisor, Jody Lawrence from Nashville, Tennessee. And finally, have you had your salad today? If you're like many Americans, salads are becoming a major part of Americans' diets. And we will travel to Yuma, Arizona to visit with Jose Cabrera and Samantha Harden to learn how how Helena is dedicated to supporting this growing industry. Thanks for joining us. And now let's get ready for FieldLink. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to FieldLink. And uh, really excited to have uh, with us today James DeMoss. James is a Helena uh, brand, uh, product manager, Helena product manager out of Louisiana. James, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Thank you all for inviting me for the show. Yeah, we're really excited to have you up today uh, to join us. I know you're getting ready for the uh, the gin show here in Memphis, and uh, glad you could come up from Louisiana. Um, James, before we dive into this world of enzymes and some of the things that we're, uh, you know, going to talk about today. Tell us a little bit about you. You know, where's home and uh, give us a little bit about your background. Sure. Uh, home, I grew up on a farm in uh, Shreveport, Louisiana. I live in Bossier City, Louisiana. I've worked for Helena for 25 years. Uh, for the first nine years, I actually um, started a territory that is currently very active today. And then I was actually the very first person that the SBU hired for the agri-intelligence role. So I kind of helped start the agri-intelligence for the SBU. And then in the last uh, few years, I've been working in uh, the HPG product manager role. Awesome. So you definitely have a, a wide range of experience from technology, from the agri-intelligence, our precision platform at here at Helena, but also into the uh, the product side of things. So excellent. We're excited to have you here, James. Uh, you know, you've been dubbed uh, one of our local experts when it comes to this space. So we're excited to learn a little bit from you and draw some of your field experience uh, and bring you know, some reality uh, to really kind of a complex project or complex area, and that's around enzymes uh, and, and microbial activity in, in many regards. And uh, this is really part of a new frontier. There's a lot of energy. You can't hardly pick up a trade magazine, go to a show, turn the radio on. Somebody's talking about whether it be microbials or enzymes, and, and there's just a lot of confusion out there. So, James, can you take a few minutes and kind of ground truth us and maybe spread out the difference. What What's the difference between these two areas? Absolutely. So the biggest thing that you see in the industry right now is the buzzword is bugs in a jug or living microbes as the, as the terminology is bugs in a jug. And everybody has one. Everybody's promoting that. Uh, where we kind of differentiate ourselves, we actually have a stabilized enzyme. And so the thing, where does the enzyme come from? The enzyme actually literally comes from the living microbes. It is the byproduct from the microbes, and the enzyme is the, what's actually doing all the heavy lifting in the soil. That's the one that's going in working on the organic matter. That's the one that's going heavy increasing the mineralization. That's the one that's going out there working on your cellulose, your byproducts, your chemical products. That's the thing that's actually breaking down the nutrients in the soil, helping convert your fertility that you put out, your synthetic fertilizers in the field, to available forms of nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, and also releasing other nutrients within, within the soil for the plant to take up. So really, uh, the enzymes are uh, helping, you know, really not just the plant, but really providing a lot of benefits to overall soil quality and soil health. Absolutely. So what they are doing, the great thing about the enzyme is they are actually naturally increasing your native microbial activity. So the other products that are on the market that are promoting their living organisms, they might not be native. There might not be a whole bunch uh, in that soil. They might even not even be of that geography. The great thing about an enzyme is it naturally increases your native microbial activity. And you got fields from low CECs to a higher CEC, and you have different levels and different types of living microbes in that soil. But the enzyme that we have, 
it naturally increases your native microbial activity in the soil, which is one of the great things about uh, Zypro. And Zypro, you mentioned Zypro, you know, obviously that's a Helena's product, fairly new product to our portfolio. Um, but uh, tell us a little bit, why is Zypro different from some of the other competitors that are out there or are out there on the market? Well, the, the, here's the big thing. Uh, when you start talking these living microbes, they are actually living microbes. But if you pick up a handful of dirt, you're literally holding 10 to 12 million living mi organisms in the soil. Most of these products are only putting about 100,000 living microbes in the soil. So that's one thing. We're actually putting the enzyme that's doing the heavy lifting. And we're also, as I said earlier, we're increasing the native population. So that's, that's the big thing. The big separation is, is our enzyme is stabilized. So you have native enzymes that's already in the soil, but traditionally an enzyme in the soil, after about seven days, it dies. Our stabilized enzyme that we have in Zypro, we're getting 60 days worth of activity out of it, which is actually a miracle and a great thing from it. As I said, we start doing the research on native enzymes, about seven days they die. Ours last for 60 days. The other big difference is the microbials that you're putting out in the soil or putting in the products, there is a host of things that you cannot put it with. So if you look on most of the labels, if it's you're putting a liquid application and you have chlorinated water, that chlorine will kill the microbe. A lot of companies are, are wanting you to impregnate it on potash. Potash is potassium chloride. The chloride actually kills the living microbe. If you mix it with any of your low salt fertilizers, it says 24 hours it must be applied. If you mix it with 1034 or 1137O, which is a common pop-up in corn, it says you have to put it out within four hours. If you start putting zincs, borons, manganeses, uh, any of your, your micro elements in there, once again, it says you have to put it out within four hours. And the majority of the farmers are not doing that. Most of the stuff's already coming pre-blended from the facility. And sometimes if we get a rain and get put out of the field, it might sit up for two to three weeks. And on these labels, all these living microbes have a whole whole list of things that you can and cannot do with them. And majority of the stuff they want you to mix it with, you can't. The reps for these other companies are uneducated or either just trying to sell their own product. And they fail to list when they talk to the farmers what they are doing and what they can and cannot mix with. They just tell them, oh, you can mix with everything. But sulfur, sulfur is another no-no. Ammonium thiosulfate, that's another huge issue. 32%, 28%, all say you cannot mix it with it because the salt and the nitrogen actually kill the microbes that you're trying to put it in there with. With Zypro, the stabilized enzyme, we can do that. We don't have that issue. We can put it with any of these fertilizers I've talked about. The other thing with the living microbe is if the pH is too high or too low, it kills them. If it's too wet or too dry, it kills them. If it's too hot or too cold, it kills them. We do not have that issue with a stabilized enzyme that we have within Zypro. We can mix it with any fertilizer. We can, the soil moisture, the soil temperature, and um, how hot or cold it is, it does not matter. So we do have that great flexibility with Zypro. And as I hear you talk about, you know, the difference between Zypro and other uh, products on the microbial side, it's not that microbials don't work. It's just, there's a lot of complexity, a lot of challenges, a lot of uh, practicality is probably the best way to say it. There's a lot of issues because as we all know, planting conditions are never optimal. Right. Optimal planting conditions are about 20% of the time. Majority of the time, they're less than favorable. Wow. And, but, but by utilizing a product like Zypro, we, we eliminate that with our, you know, exclusive enzyme uh, type of product uh, to uh, eliminate a lot of that complexity there. Um, so, so James, you've had a lot of hands-on experience with Zypro uh, recently, you know, and multiple crops. I think that's an important piece because uh, this, this is a very unique uh, product that can be utilized in lots of different crops and settings. Tell us a little bit about some of your experiences. That's the very thing that's got me so interested in Zypro is I've tried it with sugarcane. I'm sure not a, not a lot of folks up north have sugarcane. Um, but we've seen three to 400 pounds of sugar on corn. We've seen a consistent eight to 13 bushel yield increase. Looked wow. at it in soybeans. I actually got a six bushel yield response in soybeans. We've looked at it on rice. Uh, when we put it on rice, 
Uh, for South Louisiana, we call it four to four and a half barrels. For the rest of the world, that's a 14 to 16 bushel yield increase. Uh, cotton, we're consistently seeing around 100 to 125 pounds a yield increase. And the great thing with Zypro is when you mix it with a humic product, and we have another product called Receptor, they actually work in combination. So you're getting an increased yield from Zypro, and like when you mix it with the Receptor, it's also giving you a yield increase. It's not just the same yield that you would get from one or the other. They're actually complementary with each other. You know, and I've talked to a lot of our other reps with Zypro. I mean, as you mentioned, it wide range of crops. Our citrus growers in Florida are utilizing it, and just a, just a phenomenal wide range uh, of growers there. Well, how 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 do growers handle uh, Zypro? What's the best way to apply it? Uh, you know, on their farms. So traditionally, if we're banding it, we will run about eight ounces in a band, whether in fur or side dress. But the thing that we brought in our scope on, specifically rice and sweet potatoes, I didn't talk about sweet potatoes, but we've seen like 800 pound yield increase with sweet potatoes. But when we talk in rice, soybeans and sweet potatoes, we're actually impregnating that on the fertilizer and then broadcasting it on the fertilizer. And that's where we're getting the response from there from those crops there. So banding it, you know, in furrow or side dress is a great way, but we have impregnated on uh, both PNK and we've also impregnated on urea for applications in rice as well. So kind of through the kitchen sink at it. And so far this product has not backed down and it just kept on moving forward. Wow. So what I'm hearing you say is just a tremendous amount of uh, application flexibility with this type of product. Absolutely. And here's the amazing thing is when you do put it out there, and you have a control, like the root system, it, that thing will start throwing down a tap root um, two to three days faster than anything else. When you start looking at uh, like corn plants emerging from the soil, you'll have like two leaves already starting to poke up where your traditional plant will only have just the one leaf starting to come out. But then you start looking at the roots, you have like a few roots coming from the seed, but where we have the Zypro, it's actually producing a big root mass already. It's already having little fine roots, hairs come out, and actually kind of a, a global uh, root system starting to form on that days before the other products will. Wow. So, you know, you've had a lot of uh, experience here recently with Zypro, and I know a lot of your customers are utilizing it. Share some success stories with us about Zypro. Well, that's very interesting. Um, I actually worked was working with a grower yesterday, and we'd been doing Zypro on his corn. I said, I'm going to put it on the cotton. He said, not a problem. I said, I'm going to impregnate your soybeans. I said, I got some good data. And so there was a gentleman who was actually going over his fertility plan, and he invited his neighbor who wanted me to help him with his fertility plan as well. So when we were going over that, the guy, the grower asked, what is Zypro? I didn't even have a chance to say anything. The farmer that invited his neighbor over said, you will love this product. I actually ran out of it. He said, the corn where we had the Zypro, it came up faster, it developed faster, and he said, it, it cut a lot better. And he said, that product, he said, it's not expensive. You will really like it. And I didn't have to say a word. And that's just one of the stories. Uh, you go to other areas, people are seeing like in rise. They're noticing a, a healthier plant, a bigger tillering plant, uh, which is drawing questions. And people are starting to ask, hey, what do you put on that field? Got sugarcane farmers who've been putting it out, and they're talking about, hey, I'm getting three to 400 pounds of sugar more. And it's just, it's kind of evolving within itself about the success. So wherever you go, people are have been looking at it. We had people who's tried to break the product looking at strip trials and actually called, hey, I want to do a testimony on this product. Really? So we've had fantastic results with Zypro and likes it in every crop I've, I've thrown it at. Wow. Yeah. I, like I said earlier, I've, I've seen some uh, trials uh, in Florida uh, with citrus. Uh, I've seen some things uh, even on a grapes in the vineyard market. So it's a, uh, a really wide uh, range product uh, for certain. So excellent. So, you know, as we talk about, uh, you know, Zypro, uh, you know, as growers get ready for their 22 plan, you know, how, what, what, sh what are some tips, uh, James, what should they consider for their 22 plan in ter terms of incorporating Zypro? Well, the one thing a lot of the growers are seeing, as we all know, we have a inflated price of fertilizer in the market at this mm -hmm. time. And whether you are going to stick with your traditional fertility plan, I would say add this on there because it's going to add some extra bang for your buck. But if you're somebody who's thinking about cutting some of your rates and pulling back to work within a budget, 
that's where Zypros are really going to help you because the amount of increased fertility that it makes on your nitrogen and your phosphorus, your potassium, and all the micronutrients that it helps freeze up in the soil and produces for the plant, the increased root mass system, the increased uh, fine hairs that it produces in the plant, the healthier soil that it makes. I mean, at the end of the day, when you look at the USDA, when they talk about soil health, they do not talk about soil microbes. The USDA, when it comes to soil health, they're talking about enzymes. Mm -hmm. You're going to put an enzyme in the soil. It's going to increase more micros, which will produce more enzymes. So if we can get a healthier soil and help uh, increase our uptake and use of what we have, that's what we need to go. I would encourage anybody to take a look at this product. I think they'll be very happy with this product. Well, I appreciate that. And soil health is absolutely critical. And Boy, products like Zypro could certainly uh, contribute to that overall long-term health of the soil. That's important for, for all of us long-term, right? Um, so, exactly. You bet. Well, uh, James, thank you so much for coming in today, spending some time with us to learn more about enzymes and the difference between enzymes and microbials. There's a lot of confusion out there and really sharing uh, your insight around Zypro. So uh, with that, we want to thank you very much for your time. And and folks, you can join us and uh, on YouTube and learn more about Zypro at the Helena YouTube channel or log into our social channels to learn more about Zypro or contact your Helena representative. And welcome back, everybody, to uh, FieldLink. Um, my name is Bill Smith, and we're really excited to have to us. Joining us today is Jody Lawrence. It's been a wild ride uh, in the markets recently, uh, and the USDA recently shared their anticipated 22 planning intentions across the United States. And, and you know, when you start to couple that with uh, some of the continued global unrest in Ukraine and some of these weather challenges uh, that we're faced with, not just in the United States, but also South America, growers are having a lot to consider when finalizing their cropping and marketing plans for 22. And joining us today is Jody Lawrence from Strategic Advisors to share some of his insight around the 22 planning intentions. Jody, welcome to the show. Thank you, Bill. Good to be back. Awesome. Jody, you know, this uh, USDA came out with their report here recently, and uh, they talk a little bit about uh, corn being up 4% in terms of planting intentions, soybeans going down 4%, wheat going up 1%, and cotton uh, showing a strong showing here, uh, being up 9%. Uh, after the long weekend uh, of, of settling down, uh, Jody, uh, you know, what's your take uh, with this report coupled with some of the challenges that we're faced with around the world right now? Well, from a practical standpoint, the USDA uh, really did the market a favor because in previous years, they uh, have occasionally come in with a higher corn number in this report which if they're trying to secure corn acres, which is what everybody's trying to do this year, they erred on the side of uh, motivating prices to go higher and motivating more acres to be planted by trimming it all the way down to 89.49. And this and last year, both when uh, the markets were in need of corn, the USDA came well under two to three million acres under what the private analyst had estimated. And while we may eventually get back to 91 or 92 million acres planted in the U.S. like we did last year, this is a really uh, it's a really good indication that uh, you're going to have to have seven dollar corn, which we hit today for a record April 4th new crop or early April uh, new crop price. And uh, when you start talking about all the other high uh, inflationary costs this year in between land costs, land rent, all the inputs, fertilizer, diesel, uh, you can go down the long list. Uh, it, it's in a position where corn needed to do this. And uh, how, how high is high really is the next question. And then when you look at why everybody else uh, gained or uh, gain planted acreage uh, because the margins were so good. Price was up there, cotton, wheat, um, beans, and all of those markets uh, are significantly lower costs to put in the ground. So uh, there was a very practical reason why we saw the numbers we saw last Thursday. 
Jody, what's the uh, reaction been with some of the growers and producers you've talked to since this report came out? They, uh, nobody was terribly surprised because on the meeting circuit that we did for Helena this year that uh, Brady and I went on, I think we did 45 or 50 meetings and talking to all the salespeople, talking to all the farmers, they just weren't willing to uh, blindly uh, you know, chase uh, chase down corn acres because of the cost, even if the price was good, because the margins for beans have stayed just as good at a half or even less of an input cost, which makes a lot of people's decision very easy. Because what a lot of people, I think, have forgotten is that South America, over the last six months, lost close to a billion bushels worth of bean production. And that alone, if you just translated that over into what would the U.S. have to do to make that up, we'd have to plant uh, nearly 20 million more acres of beans. So there just isn't enough acreage, there isn't enough infrastructure, and there isn't enough available fertilizer supply to really push that total corn and bean acreage much over 181, 182. Yeah, you bring up a really good point. You know, we, clearly uh, you turn the news on and we hear an awful lot about Ukraine, and that is certainly a, a huge impact to our markets. But, boy, this South America play here is uh, really, I guess, quietly uh, impacting the global market. Uh, we just don't get a lot of press, it seems like. Yeah, it's uh, it's always uh, it's just simply an agriculture issue because you hear about a U.S. drought simply because you turn on the evening news, but I don't think that NBC Nightly News led any story this year in January, February, when uh, parts of southern Brazil were in a worse drought uh, that led to this loss than we were in in 2012 when our yield was cut you know, 40, 50 bushels an acre nationally. So it really, especially on the bean side, uh, really something that has evened this up because in most years, although the bean prices did go down on the larger than expected acreage number, they popped back very strongly today to make everybody realize that you can't just abandon beans uh, because corn is going up, you're, you still have to keep this ratio because the world is short of corn and beans and wheat if the Russia-Ukraine problem you know, continues d- deeper into 2022. You know, that brings up a good point. You know, as we take a look at, you know, the terrible things happening in Ukraine still, uh, I think we're, you know, well into 30, 40 days almost into this uh, uh, uh catastrophic uh, change over there. Uh, Jody, do you see any uh, upside at all for some planting intentions in that part of Europe? The weekend really uh, put some bad news into the market, which was part of uh, today's big rallies, in that Russia seems to be adjusting their strategy that they are moving from the more northern territories where Kiev, the capital, is towards the southern region and the Black Sea port region, and they are pounding Odessa. And I guess the best analogy is that Odessa is similar to New Orleans as far as shipping capacity and how critical it is, because we saw earlier this, or during the hurricane season, when the hurricane took out New Orleans for two or three weeks, it dramatically affected our prices, or negatively affected our prices. And if Odessa goes out, then Ukraine, even as an ally, will not be able to ship anything out. And the Russian supply, nobody else uh, except their immediate uh, you know, China and their trading partners who uh, aren't U.S. out friends uh, will take Russia out of it as well. And all of a sudden you take out the, t- the second and third largest exporters into the world grain markets. Uh, you're you've really you're turning the corner on what could be the absolute worst case scenario for Ukraine. Mm hmm. You know, uh, one, of, one of the other hot topics uh, right now, clearly, uh, in this space, it's surrounding around this area, is, is energy. Um, lots of chatter, lots of, lots of discussions taking place in Washington right now as, as it relates to biofuels, but also just, you know, just the general, you know, 
cost of oil currently, you know, and obviously uh, President Biden releasing, uh, you know, the strategic uh, uh, reserve here most recently. Uh, you know, what, what, uh, what's your take as far as energy is concerned as we look into 22? Well, the strategic reserve release, uh, while it's practical and it, 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 will, it, it will help to a very small extent, uh, the thing is almost completely political because you have to remember that we're now, what, seven uh, month, less than seven months away from uh, a major election that the, that, the, that, that the parties in charge, being the Democrats right now, uh, can really feel slipping away and they're going to do everything politically motivated to end inflation and whether that is to cut the biofuel mandates, release more energy to get crude oil uh, you know, back under $100 and gas back below $4. There really is a, there is a path for the next six or seven months where Washington could be the biggest enemy of the U.S. farmer rather than its biggest ally simply because of policy that they want to get in place before people go to the polls in November. Jody, do you see any upside at all for uh, the biofuel side uh, of, of the industry? Well, the uh, biodiesel side of it has got an incredibly bright outlook because you have more plants coming online. And prior to the energy problem, which Russia created because of the war, this administration was fully engaged in growing biodiesel and ethanol production. And if those plants come online and get even close to the capacity that they were expected by the end of the summer and fall, that we will have a demand spike at a time that, uh, it, you know, seems uh, incomprehensible because what we're trying to do is ration demand with higher prices right when they're coming on. But if you have $110 plus crude oil, if you have three, 350 futures before taxes on diesel uh, and a cheaper blend alternative becomes biodiesel and ethanol to at least stabilize the price of diesel and gas, unleaded gas, you're, everybody's in a catch-22 in this situation because we're trying to ration demand, but we need to ramp up demand of the biofuels just to keep energy costs under control. Uh, it's it's a rock and a hard place for everybody, it, except hopefully for demand for the U.S. farmer. While we don't need prices to go, you know, ridiculously high, we everybody is certainly benefiting and enjoying these levels right now. And Jody, you know, there's been a lot of chatter, a lot of noise about uh, inflation. Obviously, I, it, I think we're all we all can agree we're starting to feel that in our pocketbook. Uh, no matter if you're a, a grower or a consumer. Um, you know, I've heard a report here even this morning that uh, you know, food costs are starting to certainly take off and anticipated food costs for even the cost of chicken um, at the grocery store being up around 70 percent before year end. Uh, any any impact that you can see from your side as it relates to inflation for our customers? Uh, I, the Obviously, when you start talking about where does most of this grain go to, it goes to feed all of uh, the protein producing livestock side of it, whether it's chickens, whether it's cattle, whether it's hogs. So you've got the, the literally the, almost the chicken and the egg. It's more like the chicken and the corn argument that the higher it goes, then everything that is a byproduct of that corn, which certainly is uh, feed, is going to go higher with it. So it's uh, it's impossible not for those prices to go up. The you know the bird flu issue right now is certainly uh, a major concern if it continues to spread, uh, but it is not caused the panic or the devastation that it has in Southeast Asia previously. So that we'll keep an eye on that. And a, a, a widening bird flu problem in the U.S., uh, yeah, your chicken McNugget's going to get awfully expensive. Yeah, there's certainly a, a lot of outbreaks happening across the country. I know, say, Iowa had five or six locations uh, locked down recently. 
Nebraska had several as well as Minnesota. So it's certainly uh, stretching from north to south uh, with that bird flu. Well, Jody, I want to thank you very much for your time today, sharing some insight with the, the this roller coaster of a market. Uh, lots of things happening globally that are certainly impacting everybody at the farm gate. And uh, we want to thank you for your time. Uh, Jody, what's the best way for folks to reach out to you? Best way is through their Helena uh, representative, their salesperson, their local retail outlet, and we can get you signed up uh, for the uh, through the podcast and uh, also for the daily newsletter. And happy to talk to everybody and uh, get everybody on because we certainly have a lot of uh, daily information to, that's affecting everybody's bottom line. I appreciate it very much, Jody. And uh, thanks, Jody, uh, for joining us here on this episode of FieldLink. Okay, and uh, welcome back to FieldLink. Uh, really excited to be uh, t- here today in Yuma, Arizona, uh, an area where we have a lot of wide range of crops. Uh, I had the opportunity to travel down here to the desert region uh, this week and spend some time with some awesome people and uh, learning a little bit more about some of the cropping systems down here. Uh, you know, Yuma uh, is a pretty unique area as it borders, uh, you know, the M- Mexico as well as California, and it sits in the very southwest area of, of uh, Arizona. You know, uh, the neat thing about uh, Yuma is, um, you know, it, it has a very wide range of crops, as I mentioned, but we recognize this area as producing nearly 90% of the U.S. leafy green vegetables from the months of November to March. And, and, and we're right into that time frame right now. There's a lot of production taking place. We're kind of coming towards the tail end of things for the most part. But wow, what a really robust area. And joining me today on our podcast here at FieldLink is Jose Cabrera. He is a Helena Products Manager and Samantha Harden, uh, who is with the uh, Helena R&D Group. Um, Jose, Samantha, welcome to FieldLink. Thank you. Well, before we start jumping in, uh, Jose, why don't you, uh, we'll start off with you a little bit. Tell us a little bit about your background. Uh, where's home? Where did you grow up? And uh, tell us a little bit about some of the things you do as a Helena product manager. Yes, thanks, uh, Bill. Yeah, again, my name is Jose Cabrera. I'm uh, originally from South America. I'm from Ecuador. I'm from a small city in Ecuador called Guayaquil. And um, I study um, in the American School of Ecuador. And then I moved from Ecuador to Honduras to study agriculture at a university called Zamorano in Honduras. It's a Pan-American agricultural school. And uh, then I went uh, from there to Louisiana State University. So go Tigers. And um, I spent uh, about five years at uh, LSU and I got a couple degrees there. Then I started uh, basically with um, my career uh, right, right off the bat with a basic manufacturer uh, on the vegetable seed side and also on the crop protection side. And uh, then I have been with Helena for about four years now. Awesome. And, and also joining us uh, on Field Lake today is uh, Samantha Harden. Samantha is a, a native of Arizona. Tell us a little bit about some of the things you do, uh, Sam, Th- Samantha, and uh, where's home? Absolutely. Uh, I'm Samantha Harden again, and I am from Yuma, Arizona. I got my education from the University of Arizona, and uh, I did some work in the cattle industry and went on to uh, plant breeding with uh, Monsanto and seed production. And and now I've been at Helena for only about six months, so my career is young here. (laughs) But so far, um, we've trial by fire right into the trial season. So um, we do trials for other chemical companies and also for Helena, just researching our products up against and in cooperation with their products. Um, So it's pretty interesting. Oh, great. Well, it's really awesome to have both of you here joining us today as we learn a little bit about, you know, some of the crops in the desert and, and more specifically, really want to take a little time and focus on lettuce salad it's a really uh, a unique area and unique part of the country and as we take a look at uh jose uh as we talk a little bit about uh, lettuce and can you kind of give us a size and scope how big the lettuce industry is and you know how what's the process because a lot of our listeners just simply you know we're all kind of used to eating lettuce but we may not know really how it's grown and and what really goes into producing that particular crop yeah, absolutely. I think you certainly want to expect lettuce to be a big crop in the desert. 
especially with the temperatures that we get here in the desert, which are extreme. We get extreme cold weather and extreme heat. So lettuce is a sensitive crop. Such are some other leafy greens like spinach and uh, like uh, uh, spring spring mix, mixes and you know other brassica crops. When I say brassica, we're talking about like broccoli, cauliflower, cabbage, and things like that. But yeah, they particularly don't like too much the heat. So usually they start around. Um, around September, October with transplanting. And uh, yeah, they're still hot right around that time, but the nights are starting to cool off. So we, they come, that, that's what a lot of these uh, crops are uh, grown in the coast where you have um, really average uh, cooler temperatures than what we have here in the desert, but they transition from the coast to the desert and back to the coast. So um, that's that's kind of like the, the Juma is considered the winter vegetable capital of the world. By the way, that's that's kind of like a really, really cool denomination. So um, that's uh, kind of like the way that it, it uh, goes back and forth from the coast to the desert, from the desert back to the coast. And uh, the extension is huge. Any um, and, and it's mainly grown uh, here in, in Juma and Juma County and also in uh, Imperial Valley in California and in other areas in a smaller proportion. proportion. But uh, yeah, it is pretty cool to uh, be able to deal a lot with these crops that are very sensitive. So they keep us on our toes, for sure. So, so Jose, you know, uh, for, for a lot of us that are not familiar with the typical production of, of uh, you know, lettuce, we'll type, focus on head lettuce in this case, you said... These crops are transplanted in around September? So some of them are. Some are, uh, you know, there's, I guess, a mix of direct seeding and transplant. A lot of a lot of it's direct seeding, uh, but uh, they, you know, they uh, a lot of that, that industry works out of greenhouses. Okay. And uh, so that's that's kind of like a, there's a window around, I think, September, October, when the, the uh, transition starts. And uh, like I said, around that time, the temperatures are still kind of high. So there's a little bit of risk, uh, but they take a risk. The producers take a risk for that window of opportunity in terms of the market. Sure. And then I would assume September, you know, starting to cool off, but you can get those hot spells too, and it can really do some damage in some cases. So typically uh, from a lettuce perspective, do we get one or two crops throughout that September oh. through spring, two to th- typically two. Yeah. I think about about three, two to three uh, cycles. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's it's still a kind of like a quick. Um, it, it's a fast growing crop compared to like a field crop like corn or uh, cotton or alfalfa, but uh, you still have you know are able to accomplish multiple cycles of growing that crop. Wow. You know, I did a little bit of homework, you know, trying to get ready for this Field Link podcast. And it was really interesting to me uh, to deep dive a little bit into this to understand that, you know, we're in a big transition. And I think those of us that are consumers of lettuce and leafy greens have seen this in the grocery stores where we can go in and it, it's, it used to be just a head of lettuce. And today it's really gravita- uh, transitioning more or less to to the bagged side of things. And a lot of that has to do with some of the uh, uh, packaging and distribution and logistics of, of these crops. Right now uh, in the United, or actually globally, there's about, it's a $10.78 billion business as of 2020. Um, and research shows right now that w- they're looking at about an 8.2% annual growth in this space. And that that's a strong demand. And that's certainly been reinforced with COVID-19 as as consumers, as all of us as consumers, as we we're locked down, we we're being forced to continue to maybe reinvent ourselves a little bit, you know, eat a little healthier in some cases and, and uh, do some more home cooking. So that's really increased the demand for packaged vegetables, in this case, packaged leafy greens uh, certainly looks like a, a, a market that's going to continue to grow. Um, packaged greens make up 63% of the total raw green business. So certainly uh, as you look at raw greens, you know, the days of going to the grocery store and just getting ahead of lettuce is is starting to go away in some places uh, and, and being replaced with these packaged yeah, goods. Come and choose now. <laughs> yeah, we have choices, right? We've got uh, choices. And, uh, uh, and, and another fun fact that I found, uh, you know, as this transitions and, and specifically around Yuma, 
uh, 41% of the global leafy green market is, is in North America. Uh, and, you know, with, with a significant 90% of that coming from Yuma, you could be in Quebec, you could be in New York City, you could be in Washington. And that crop is likely grown right here in, in Yuma County. Um, Samantha, you tell us a little bit about, um, you know, as we take a, a look at some of the uh, trials that we got to go out and spend some time with you and some of the work that you're working on uh, at the field day. Uh, you know, what, what's the what's the goal of the lettuce trial that you you and Jose both worked on and cooperated together to put out there uh, for Helena reps as well as growers to preview this year? Yeah, absolutely. So we have a few different things going on out there. Um, a lot of it is uh, surrounded, uh, surrounding the idea of starter fertilizers, getting that plant up out of the ground, getting it going, getting it happy and healthy. In one sense, looking at our Helena products and what they bring to the table in terms of getting that stuff up out of the ground and established. And on the other side, our Helena products in concert with insecticides to control a disease that we, or a virus actually, to be more specific, that Salinas is plagued by INSV, which is impatent spotted necrotic virus um, in lettuce. And here it's very here and there, whether we get it or not. And so out there we're measuring uh, Western flower thrips. Okay. So we're out there counting the bugs and getting a measurement on that. In the case that we don't get the virus, we can show control of the insect that vectors the virus. Um, so we're comparing out there the insecticide alone and then also insecticide with our Helena fertility package that we've kind of pieced together based on local information and some information from trialing we did in Salinas and just seeing what that brings to the table with that uh, fertility package up underneath it. Wow, that's really exciting. So you're looking at lots of different things, not just a, a singular, uh, you know, challenge in this case, looking at, hey, how can we get fertility? And Jose, I assume, you know, the purpose of the fertility side with the pop-ups and the quick starters, get that plant going early, right? Exactly. Get it up, get it going, because we do have a short period of time, especially if we're trying to raise two, maybe even three crops here. So getting that crop going early is critical. Yeah, it is. And that's why they call it mainly pop-up or starter fertilizer plants. And that is the, the, the point that we were trying to um, accomplish or convey in some of these field trials that we've seen for the past couple of days here in Yuma. It's been to try to uh, exchange some knowledge between our different branches within Helena and uh, also learn. Just all of, all of us need to need to learn more, especially in this commodity fertilizer um, like like situation that we are in right now because of worldwide demand and everything that is happening, uh, we, we definitely need to be more efficient with what we can do. Well, that's excellent. And, and, and Samantha, tell us a little bit more about some of the diseases that you're observing. I mean, just broadly speaking, you know, based on the trials that we looked at yesterday, what are your, as a researcher, what are your observations? What have you kind of learned? Well, out there so far, um, it's pretty early in terms of the INSV. The virus usually comes on when it's a little hotter. The plants are getting stressed. The, you know, the, the virus is able to kind of get going out there. Um, but generally, we have seen the reduction of feeding damage and severity from the insects with the Helena package on top of the insecticide <laughs> versus just the insecticide alone. So that's pretty interesting to look at. But um, overall in our trials in general, we're um, dealing with downy mildew is a big deal right now. We're a month out probably from uh, powdery mildew and some melons, um, but in lettuce, mostly right now we're doing downy, lettuce aphid, and um, we finished some lepidopteran work, which is the worm complex in the fall. So those are been our heavy hitters this, this season. I think it's really interesting, you know, um, really as a consumer to sit back and think about all of the research and uh, some of the products that you guys are really testing and, and you know, surrounding uh, uh, into this particular market really to make this crop more efficient and, 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 and from a quality perspective too. Um, you know, it's not, it, it certainly is about yield. And we heard some of, uh, some of our sales reps and some of the growers talking a little bit about that yesterday. It certainly is about uh, yield. 
but quality. Quality is absolutely important, especially to these crops but from a visual perspective. Um, do you guys have some insight on that as far as quality is concerned, Jose? Yeah, so that that is uh, the one thing, like, like you said, Bill, I think um, that is uh, one thing that we cannot um, really, we, we cannot negotiate with quality. Quality is, um, is, is primal. And, um, the, the thing with, with quality, it, it depends a lot on the, on the specs that the, the producers, they set. And, um, the, a lot of the size and quality is already, is, is, has, it has been already established by the market. Mm -hmm. So as much as we would like to sometimes, um, improve or change some of those specs and test different components with our products, we need to be, um, be very much aligned with all the specs of the market and all the standards of the of the market in terms of size, quality. And uh, right now, when you grab a bag of salad in the grocery store, um, most of uh, much, most, many of us uh, sometimes wonder how we can have such a clean. Uh, because if you see those in the field, like like it, there is a lot of bugs. Everything wants to eat that that salad, that leaf of salad, but. There is a zero tolerance for any type of speck of disease, of mildew, of fungus, of insects, anything, especially also on the organic market. And the organic market is a little more complicated because the alternatives that they have for production is not as wide as the conventional market. Well, you bring up a great point about, you know, from the quality perspective, I mean, in the consumer, the consumer drives all of this. And in a lot of cases, the um, uh, some of the retailers, you know, I was talking to some of the some of our sales reps yesterday about Costco has their specs for this type of lettuce. Don't try to get it bigger. We need it to fit into this bag. We need to have it this specific size. While we as researchers and, and uh, those of of us that are involved with some of the Helena products, we could really make that, you know, head of lettuce be huge and uh, taste even better, but uh, the market requires certain specs and we certainly have to uh, fall into those uh, uh, parameters. You know, uh, Jose, you, t you talked a little bit about, um, you know, quality and, and the number of insects and, and, and Samantha talked about, uh, you know, number of diseases and funguses that are out there, uh, mildew and so forth. That takes a lot of folks to be, you know, observing those crops. Uh, you know, can you share with some of our audience that's not familiar with this cropping system, you know, how often are these crops scouted roughly and what's what's the manpower involved or the technology, you know, broadly speaking, uh, to, to manage these kind of crops? Yeah, and that's where our, our um, Helena uh, teams uh, come to, to fruition when, when they they have to be scouting multiple times throughout the, the day, sometimes uh, throughout the week, they're always on top of the crop because uh, they, it, it, it doesn't take too long for uh, a small problem to become a big problem, both in the insect side or in the disease side, or just general growing practice like water irrigation management and all that. So they are they have to be on top, and that's uh, the beauty about a lot of our, um, our our Helena folks that they have the the knowledge and they have the um, you know the, all the training that 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 we need for um, the the grower to feel comfortable. Um, allowing them to recommend all the, those best practices. Yeah, and it's uh, exciting. I know there's some conferences going on right now as we're doing this FieldLink podcast, talking about, you know, scouting management and water management. And that's a whole space that we have in our agri-intelligence platform. That's uh, really uh, a very exciting time uh, for, for producers, as well as all of us here at Helena. And we can certainly expand on that in future podcasts. But uh, by all means, that is a critical part of, of uh, the production cycle. Uh, Samantha, you know, yesterday I had an opportunity um, as we were talking with uh, some of the growers, or excuse me, some of the sales reps and, and about their growers and so, some of the things that they've experienced, um, you know, with some of the research that you've been working on in conjunction with Jose and the rest of the team, some of the success stories were awesome. I mean, we had one one sales rep talk about how he actually received about a 30% increase in his lettuce head uh, production there. Um, you know, tell us a little bit, how does that make you feel as a researcher, you know, uh, when, when you think about all of the stuff that you and Jose are doing to increase those yields? What kind of success stories have you heard in addition to that one? It's, it's pretty awesome to be on the research side of that and be able to support something that really came about organically. And we really locally created 
blends and selected Helena products that came out with this 30% increase uh, in yield, which is awesome to go and put that in my trial and then back it up with hard data from both large strip demos and small replicated blocks. So it's very solid data um, to support decisions that were made out in the field or you know ideas that came from the field. Uh, so so far, we've only heard the greatest the greatest story from our Desert Rise blend, and we have different versions of that in different areas. And it's cool to kind of take that and modify it based on the area and the grower need. And they were kind of running through some scenarios like that in the field. So um, it's exciting to look forward to future tests of of that type of concept. Yeah, it's uh, it's exciting time, and uh, it's got to feel make you both feel really great when you hear those success stories. How growers are are really benefiting, um, you know, not just from the yield perspective, but from the financial perspective. But sitting back even bigger, thinking about wow, we're really this is our small part, really, and uh, in, in food production and in our small little way of helping to continue to feed these 9 billion people that we've got to feed here in a few years. Exactly. And the thing is that we have experienced the most challenging times for the past couple of years in every aspect of our lives. And uh, agriculture, it doesn't, it doesn't uh, has any uh, difference than what we what we've been doing for the past couple of years. So challenges are always going to be there is how do we manage those challenges? And I think that's, that's where a lot of our products, uh, you know, the, the, the tagline of or for a company of Helen is people's products, people, products, and knowledge. And I think we have extenuated a lot of those resources, especially for the past couple of years with all the challenges we've had. Uh, I think that's really well said. And, uh, you know, um, I, I want to thank all of you for hosting us here in Yuma this week. Uh, it's been a great opportunity to get out and see some of the work that you're doing to help, you know, continue to, you know, help our customers, but, uh, and also, you know, feed our families. Uh, I, I think we need to think bigger sometimes and uh, your, your work is really much appreciated and uh, folks uh, we want to thank uh, Jose and Samantha for all that you do and uh, I want to thank you for joining us for today's episode of Link. be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform to ensure that you don't miss the latest Link podcast episode we're also excited to announce that you can now follow us on YouTube as all episodes can now be found on the Helena Agra YouTube channel.